Well, welcome. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside. And wherever you are and whatever time you're joining us, just know we're really glad you're worshiping with us. Before we dig into God's word, let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that we can be gathered together under your name, united by your story, um, seeking to pursue you even at a time such as this. As we continue to study your gospel, uh, we ask that you would guide us, Lord, and that you continue to cultivate in us this kingdom imagination, that you would show us how to live in this world as we follow you, that our belief translates into action that matters and that addresses the issues of our day. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you would apply it to our feet, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Did you know that there are Tinder-inspired baby naming apps? Here's how it works. Two people download the app, each on their phone, and it shows them a name, and you swipe left to disregard a name. You swipe right if you like a name, and then it populates those names into a list. Now, this is necessary because naming a baby is actually pretty hard. In fact, I had friends who had a beautiful baby girl and they renamed her three months later because they felt like the name they gave her didn't fit. I have other friends who waited an entire year before settling on a name after their baby was born. But sometimes you get it right. Alistair. Alistair means defender of mankind. I love my name. And if you're looking for a baby name, name your baby Alistair. Now, the meaning of my name is a little much to live up to, but my parents didn't name me Alistair because it means defender of mankind. They named me Alistair because they have a friend named Alistair, and they didn't even name me Alistair because they liked his character. They just liked his name. When we were trying to name our girls, Julia and I actually went back and forth quite a few times. And when we settled on names, uh, we had different reasons. So Ansley means from the hermitage field, and that makes sense because we're hermits. And Magnolia, well, we just thought it was a pretty name. But it also struck a visual image for us. We had this picture of a, an open, spacious, spacious field with a magnolia tree there. And that's our hope and our vision for our girls, that they might mutually strengthen and complement one another. Last year, the most popular baby name uh, was Liam and Olivia. And roughly 2,000 years ago, one of the most popular baby names was Theophilus. And I can imagine parents having their child and naming their child Theophilus just because they like the name, or maybe naming this child Theophilus because they knew a Theophilus, or maybe some parents name their child Theophilus because Theophilus means lover of God. And it was their hope for their child that they might grow up to be a lover of God. Now, I've brought up names and their meaning because we're going to explore the audience of Luke today. Last week, we looked at the author. We asked the question, who is Luke? Today, we're going to ask, who is Theophilus? Who is this lover of God that Luke wrote to? So let's open our Bibles and read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 once more. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So who is most excellent Theophilus? The answer is actually pretty quick. We don't know a lot about him. We know that he was most excellent. And that this isn't just because Luke was hanging out with a bunch of surfers in Galilee, and it's not because he connected with Bill and Ted or anything like that. Most excellent was actually an honorary title reserved for special Roman officials. Uh, and it's not much different today. For example, Julie Payette, the governor general of Canada, has an honorary title, and it's Her Excellency. So we know that Theophilus was a person with high status in society. We know that much. We also know that Theophilus had been taught the gospel to some degree. He has some knowledge about Jesus and the early church, but we don't know the extent of his knowledge. Now, some people think that Theophilus was probably a recently baptized follower of Jesus and he needed more instruction in the faith. And others think that it's the opposite, that he was actually on the outside looking in, that he knew bits and pieces about this Jesus movement, and he was intrigued by it, and he wanted to learn more. And perhaps he was even considering aligning himself with this movement of Jesus. Wherever Theophilus may be in his journey in faith, it's fair to assume that there was an ingredient still missing, because Luke says that he writes to Theophilus so that he can have certainty about what he was taught. And Theophilus, apparently, he wants to learn more, which is always a great posture to take. Theophilus also had some kind of connection to Luke. We don't know the extent of their relationship, but clearly they knew one another. And either way, it's clear that Luke wrote this gospel and the book of Acts specifically to Theophilus. And I doubt that the meaning of Theophilus's name, this lover of God, that that was lost on Luke because I think he's writing to Theophilus because he wants to see Theophilus enter in more fully to his namesake, to be a lover of God. And Luke used this opportunity not just to write to one person, but to write to a wider audience too. This is so evident in his gospel. And so Luke is inviting us to have certainty so that we can become lovers of God as well. And so as we join Theophilus as an audience, as the person that Luke is writing to, as we do that as a community and as individuals, I want to ask a different question this morning. How do we journey toward becoming lovers of God? How do we become lovers of God? From the little we do know about Theophilus, here's what we can see from his journey that might apply to our own. You can pursue truth into a certain kind of certainty. You can pursue truth into a certain kind of certainty. So the first step into this journey of becoming a lover of God is to pursue truth. And often a desire for truth precedes knowing the truth. When you first start to pursue truth, you have to admit to yourself that you don't actually know what the truth is or that you only know in part. You know, my first existential crisis happened when I was 14 years old. You can decide if I was early or late to the game. 
You know, I was standing in front of my mirror in my bedroom. I had a gaudy industrial t-shirt band uh, on and uh, I had my hair recently dyed, nothing out of the ordinary. And I was just staring at myself in the mirror. And then I realized I was looking back at myself and it really unnerved me because in a different way, I realized I exist. Now, I wasn't about to win any philosophical awards or anything like that, but it left me wondering, who am I and why am I here? And at that moment, for whatever reason, a desire to know the truth was sparked within me. But I discovered that as you begin to pursue truth, the path toward truth is rarely a straight line. It's more like a zigzag moving all over the place, sometimes forward, sometimes back, sometimes way out in left field and then right and then back again and then forward. And you're moving slowly toward truth and eventually you're starting to find the path, but there are detours along the way. Douglas Copeland writes in his book, Life After God, when you're young, you always feel that life hasn't yet begun. That life is always scheduled to begin next week, next month, next year, after the holidays, whenever. And I lived this. I knew this in my bones. Life and truth with it were to be found around the corner next week, next month, whenever. And so after my existential crisis, I started pursuing truth. And I started reading as much as I could from spiritual authors and religions. So I read the Bhagavad Gita. I read uh, Zen scriptures. I read everything I could about the New Age movement. And my knowledge and bookshelf grew and grew. But the problem was after years and years of trying to digest and try on these different perspectives, I didn't feel like I was getting any closer to the truth. So I tried meditation, I tried chanting, I tried astral projection, I tried crystals, I tried to balance my chakras, I tried psychedelic drugs, I visited shamans and psychics, I went to spiritual retreats. I tried everything I could, all in the pursuit of truth. But I kept searching because my accumulated knowledge and experiences didn't settle my soul. It didn't settle that initial existential crisis. Who am I? Why am I here? The one place I didn't want to look was Christianity. I didn't think truth had anything to do with religion, let alone the Christian religion. But then Christians just kept popping up in my path and they kept appearing in places you wouldn't think to find them. You know, one of the most compelling conversations I ever had about following Jesus before I ever followed Jesus was around midnight while I was ghost hunting in Victoria. You know, ghost hunting. You don't expect to find a Christian there. You're looking for ghosts. But Christians just kept popping up. And the Christians I met, the vast majority of them just didn't fit into the caricature, into the stereotype I had of Christians. You know, the people I met, they weren't judgmental. They didn't claim to know everything. They listened before they spoke. They answered my questions as well as they could. They accepted the challenges that I offered and they were really gracious most of the time. And after all of this started happening over and over, one day I confessed to a close friend, I think I'm going to be 
a Christian one day. And he laughed it off, and I did too, and I actually kind of surprised myself when I said that. I thought, where did that come from? The pursuit of truth takes time. And as truth starts to come into focus, we may initially resist it because we don't really like what we're beginning to see. Like Theophilus, we might be on the outside looking in at the Christian movement. We may be pursuing truth, but now we're scratching our heads because we think, really? Is this where truth is leading? And when you hit this point in the journey, when the zigzags settle down, when the path starts to come into focus, whether you're just exploring faith or whether you're reconsidering your faith, whether you've been deconstructing and now reconstructing, wherever you are in that journey, as the path comes into focus, here's what we can learn from Theophilus about next steps we can take. First, Theophilus went to a trusted person, someone he knew and someone who embodied the ways of Jesus. He went to Luke. He went to someone who had credibility in his eyes. He went to someone who had firsthand knowledge of the movement. I was having lunch with a friend recently, and he had participated in one of our summer groups that read the book On the Road with St. Augustine. So my friend's telling me about this book and he's telling me what stood out to him the most was when uh, he learned about Augustine meeting uh, the Bishop Ambrose. Because what ultimately helped St. Augustine discover the truth, it wasn't necessarily more and more information. Although Augustine himself loved learning and even loved teaching, what helped him take that next step was when he met someone who embodied all the learning and loved him in a different way. In his book, Confessions, St. Augustine reflects on his journey of faith and he confesses this, I began to love Ambrose at first, not as a teacher of truth, for I'd quite despaired of finding it in your church, but simply as a man who was kind and generous to me. The path toward truth for St. Augustine was a long and winding one, like many of ours. And along the way, he said prayers like, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And eventually, however, Augustine came to find truth within Christianity and the church. And one of the most significant steps for him was seeing the truth embodied in a kind and generous person. For my own journey, it's been people like Chris and Jen and Kyle and John, people who embodied all of the things we were talking about, people who I got to know and thought, wow, I would actually like to be more like these people. Maybe it's possible. In the pursuit of truth, people who embody the truth begin to appear in our lives. And so wherever you are in your journey, I pray that you would have eyes to see these people in your midst. Second, Theophilus went to Luke and in turn, he went to a trusted source. He read the two books that Luke had written for him and we can read them too. And so the pursuit of truth leads us to the source of truth, scripture. And if we want to know the truth about Jesus, then we should start in the Gospels. The Catholic scholar Raymond Brown wrote one of the most reputable and well-known introductions to the New Testament. And on the inside jacket, there's a list of glowing reviews 
about the book. And then the publisher wrote something underneath this list of reviews that I just love. Here's what the publisher wrote. But do not rely on their word alone. Read it for yourself. And knowing what I know of Brown's scholarship, I think he would apply this to his book as a whole. Don't trust his word for it. Read the book for yourself. Go to the New Testament for yourself. Go to that primary source. Read Luke for yourself to find truth. Luke wrote his book for people who want certainty about the truth they've been hearing about the truth they've been longing for. They want to get clarity. They want some certainty about what they're learning. And of course, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't go to secondary sources or that you shouldn't read books that might help you understand who Jesus is or understand the scriptures. There's lots of good and helpful books that will help you in the journey, and I can give you recommendations. But do not rely on their words alone. Read the gospel for yourself. God inspired Luke to write this account for us in a way that is accessible and comprehensible. So as you pursue truth, as you meet people who embody truth, as you connect to the source of truth through scripture, the path to truth brings about a certain kind of certainty. A certain kind of certainty. Luke writes, he says, to persuade Theophilus to embrace the certainty about what he's been taught. But what kind of certainty are we talking about here? We're not talking about I have all the right answers to all the right questions kind of certainty. This kind of certainty I think we all know can be rather off-putting. When I first became a follower of Jesus, I met someone who had pretty extensive Bible knowledge and one day decided to test me. He asked Alistair, are you called or are you chosen? And I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I just happened to guess the right answer. I didn't know that he was alluding to a parable that Jesus told where Jesus concludes many are called, but few are chosen. Another time with another person, I was at dinner and out of nowhere, they asked me, Alistair, do you know what gate you're going to enter through to enter the new Jerusalem? Now, I didn't even know that a new Jerusalem was under construction. So here's a hint. It's not. It will come when the new heavens and the new earth are established. But I didn't know. So I just said, I guess like whichever gate is open to me. And my examiner was not satisfied. You know, sometimes very well-meaning people can accidentally come to the conviction that getting the right answers to the right questions is what faith is all about. And sometimes they can mistakenly conclude that if you don't have the right answer, then clearly you don't have faith. And I know that many of you have been in, in Christian environments where there's been so much pressure for you to get the right answers that it's stifled out your ability to truly have faith in Christ. And I know that's painful. And I know that's difficult. Peter ends in his book, The Sin of Certainty, points out the danger of getting our wires crossed here. Here's what Enns has to say. Aligning faith in God and certainty about what we believe and needing to be right in order to maintain a healthy faith, these do not make for a healthy faith in God. In a nutshell, th that is the problem. And that is what I mean 
by the sin of certainty. It is sin because this pattern of thinking sells God short by keeping the creator captive to what we're able to comprehend. And while I'll quibble with ends on a few points, he makes a good one here. It's dangerous to mistake what we can comprehend about God with faith in God. And it's even more dangerous to oversell just how much we are able to comprehend about God. Because the truth is, there's much we can't comprehend about God. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God can and will defy our comprehension because God is God and we are not. He is the creator and we are the creation. And God's concern though, and it's important you hear this, isn't that you ace some theological exam. God's concern isn't that you comprehend him. It's that you learn how to trust him and have faith in him and have certainty about the things you can know. Enns goes on to say this, The life of Christian faith is more than agreeing with a set of beliefs about Christ or morality or how to read the Bible. It means being so intimately connected to Christ that his crucifixion is ours, his death is ours, his life is our life, which is hardly something we grasp with our minds. It has to be experienced. And I agree with him. But if we're going to have faith in Jesus Christ, if we're going to trust Jesus, if we're going to be so intimately connected to him, we need some degree of certainty about him. What we think and believe, it matters, but it, it's important on the journey to truth to begin with the essentials. Yes, God is incomprehensible. But God is also knowable because God has revealed himself. God has made himself known in his son by sending Christ to reconcile all things to himself. So we can comprehend what God has plainly revealed for us to know. And we can have certainty about the things God wants us to know as well. And this is what Luke says is also. Luke wants Theophilus and us to have certainty regarding the historical events about Jesus, but he also wants us to have certainty about what these events mean theologically. You know, it's one thing to say, yes, Jesus was a real, living, breathing person who walked the earth and lived in ancient Palestine. It's one thing to say, yes, Jesus was even crucified. We have certainty these things happen. The overwhelming majority of scholars, Christian or not, are going to say Jesus was a real human being who walked the earth and was crucified. But it's an altogether different kind of certainty to affirm what Jesus taught to be true. To believe that his death really brings about the forgiveness of sins. To believe that with his resurrection we are united to him and given new life. To confess that he really is Savior and Lord. And this is the kind of certainty that Luke wants to see take root in Theophilus and in us. And of course, this raises questions about the trustworthiness of the gospel and the claims that Jesus make. And we're going to deal with this next week. And so I'll just hold tight for now. What I want to focus on is that a pursuit of truth can lead us into a certain kind of certainty. 
And Luke, he uses the same word for certainty again in the book of Acts. And there it's found in Peter's mouth during his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And here's what Peter says. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so it's clear that Luke believes these essentials can be known for certain. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that the things the Bible says, the perspective it advocates, uh, the convictions it exhorts us to uphold are of unimportance. Of course they're important, but what I am saying is that you don't have to have all of that sorted out first. Conviction about these things is not the starting point, as important as they may be. The certainty Luke advocates for us begins with the essentials about Jesus. He's God incarnate. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead. He is Savior and he is Lord. And you can be certain about more than these essentials. I'm sure of that. But first, pursue truth into a certain kind of certainty about Jesus. Through faith, become intimately connected to his life and death and resurrection. And then through faith, begin to seek understanding about all these other matters as you continue to journey into truth. The sort of certainty we're talking about here is not the same as scientific certainty that you get from observing and repeating uh, experiments and building reliability. But it is a certainty that comes through reliability because you begin to know Christ and just how reliable he is. Now, this is just a sketch of the journey to become a lover of God. There's many other things, of course, that happen in this journey. But as I wrap up today, I want to highlight one key milestone on this journey. There's a shift that happens. The author and farmer Wendell Berry uh, puts it this way. He writes, If you could do it, I suppose, it would be a good idea to live your life in a straight line. But that is not the way I have done it. So far, I'm a pilgrim. But my pilgrimage has been wandering and unmarked. Often, what's looked like a straight line to me has been a circling or a doubling back. And yet, for a long time, looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I've been led. I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I've been led. We become lovers of God when we realize that although we've been pursuing truth, truth first pursued us. This is what I came to see in my own journey. I was caught by surprise that day. I said, I think I'm going to be a Christian one day. And I said it because I was starting to become aware of how I was being pursued. I felt like faith was closing in on me. It wasn't coercing me, but loving me. It wasn't forcing me in, but gently wooing me into a different way of being. The truth was pursuing me, even though I'd been pursuing the truth. The Apostle John puts it like this in his letter. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we've loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. On the journey toward truth, a shift happens and you discover that all along the way you've been led by God who's drawing you to himself because he loves you. You have been pursued. You have been led. You're being drawn into his love. And when you come to see this, this is the mile marker when you become a lover of God. And you can actually join St. Augustine in saying to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. And we can be certain of this because God is exactly like the father described in the parable of the prodigal son, which appears only in the gospel of Luke in chapter 15. God is the father who runs out to embrace his wayward child. God is the father who covers this child in love and kisses and affection. God is the father who extravagantly blesses this child with more than he deserves. And this is precisely what God has done for each and every single one of us for the entire universe through sending his son to reconcile all things to himself. And this is why the gospel is good news of great joy, as Luke will say in chapter 2. And so when you pursue truth, you inevitably come to see you've been pursued, you've been led, that God is drawing you to himself in Christ. And this is what Luke wants his audience to have certainty about, about these essentials. And if the good news of the gospel has become old news for you, I invite you to press in and hear it afresh. Just like we don't want to be the sort of people who see a sunset and sunrise and say, meh. Let's not be the sort of people who lose sight of the beauty of the essential truths that become familiar over time but should never become boring because they're magnificent and so they're beautiful. So keep pursuing truth in a fresh way. But it's okay if you're still just figuring this out. And if you're uncertain about things I've said or even things that Luke has said, that's exactly where Theophilus was, which means you're in the exact place Luke desires his audience to be. And so I want to invite you to pursue truth and seek a certain kind of certainty with us and to take as long as you need, but no longer than necessary. So may God bless you and bless us as we pursue truth into this certainty. And may we become lovers of God when we see that God has pursued us with a love that will not let us go.